Welcome to Insights into Organisational Culture, a podcast produced for the University of Southern Queensland's Master of Business Administration. I'm Dr. Daniel Maddock, a digital pedagogy and media specialist and part of the MBA design team. In this podcast series, we talk to leaders from a variety of industries about how to create, sustain and influence organisational culture for high performance. These interviews were recorded via the internet, so please keep this in mind as you listen to this episode. Nia Yari Giam, Jagenba, Na Gayabu, Yarrawa Peoples, Nia Toowoomba. This podcast is recorded on the traditional lands of the Giabul and Yarrawa peoples in a place called Toowoomba. Our guest for this episode has extensive executive and energy industry experience working in senior roles at Santos, Singapore LNG Corporation, the Energy Market Authority and Woodside. Rod Duke has now been the Chief Executive Officer of Energy Queensland these past 12 months. He's also a board director on the University of Queensland's School of Chemical Engineering Industry Advisory Board and the LNG Marine Fuels Institute. Rod Duke, welcome to the show. Thank you. Nice to be here. Rod, can you tell me a little bit about your current role and the organisation you work for? So I'm currently the Chief Executive Officer of Energy Queensland Limited, which is the parent company of a number of wholly owned uh, subsidiaries, probably better known to people as uh, as Energex, Ergon, uh, Ergon Retail and Eureka perhaps. The uh, main purpose of the business is uh, electricity distribution. So both the Energex network and the Ergon uh, networks are the electricity distributors in the state of Queensland. People would uh, perhaps call them the poles and wires businesses. Um, and uh, they take uh, electricity from various sources, including the transmission grid, but also increasingly from uh, the rooftops of people's homes and uh, distribute that electricity to uh, to consumers and to customers throughout the state of Queensland. So we have a very large uh, network or two networks combined, uh, in fact, geographically uh, operated by one organisation. So I think probably the largest uh, electricity distribution network in the world. We have about uh, 2.4 uh, million connected consumers, connected premises. And uh, on top of that, we have our retail business. So in the southeast corner of Queensland, it's a fully contestable market and uh, people buy that electricity from a, a range of different electricity retailers, large and small. Uh, but outside of uh, the southeast corner in the regional areas of Queensland, Ergon Retail is the default uh, electricity retailer for most people, uh, certainly most uh, small and medium-sized consumers would actually buy their electricity from Ergon Retail. So we have uh, about 760,000 retail customers, which probably makes us about the fourth or fifth largest electricity retailer in the country by numbers of customers. And uh, we're a very large participant in the uh, wholesale electricity market market because we are not a generator. We, uh, we buy our electricity from the national electricity market and then supply that to uh, that three quarters of a million uh, different customer premises. I mentioned that we have a, a fourth branch of the business, which is uh, called Eureka. Eureka is our sort of uh, growth uh, business. It's a business which is primarily focused on electrical contracting. Uh, so uh, it's a non-regulated business. The uh, Energix Nergon networks are regulated businesses and the retail business is a price regulated uh, business as well. Eureka is an unregulated business, which means we can compete on a competitive basis for uh, business with a whole range of different players. And uh, we're one of the more substantial uh, electrical engineering construction contractors in Australia. Uh, We do work through Eureka uh, across uh, the entire eastern seaboard, 
We have at present about 12 jobs on the go. I think about uh, six of those are in Queensland, a couple in Victoria, three or so in New South Wales, and uh, we're currently uh, rewiring Pine Gap for the Department of Defence in the Northern Territory. So that business also has a substantial metering business, principally electrical uh, meters, as well as telecommunications business. So they're the uh, sort of growth parts of uh, the business where we're trying to generate additional business, additional revenue, leveraging off the sort of organisational skills that we have in the overall organisation. That's an astonishing um, business uh, that you have there, Rod. And, and unlike any other business, um, you, you have electricity that you have to supply to, to customers and those customers want it and need it all the time and an ever-growing market. And as you say, you've got lots of different businesses that make up that one uh, large business of uh, Energy Queensland. It must be quite a role to manage all of that. You're right. It's a, it's a challenging role to be the chief executive of a large organisation, especially one which is so geographically dispersed. We have about 7,300 employees across the state of Queensland and we have 160 locations across the state where people would consider that their place of work, where they go in the morning before they start their job in the field or an office building or a warehouse or other facility where they would actually spend most of their working day. So we have a very large quantity of assets in the regulated businesses. We have about $26 billion Australian dollars worth of assets, which are the economic return on which is regulated by the the National Electricity Regulator, the Australian Energy Regulator. That is the core of the business, I guess you would say, uh, retail is a very, very important job that we do in, in actually selling, sourcing and selling electricity to consumers in regional areas of the state. Uh, and of course, uh, Eureka, which um, we're trying to uh, grow into something much bigger than it is already. Now, this is an episode about organisational culture and how to understand it and how it plays a part in uh, leadership, especially. Obviously, that's a big part of Energy Queensland and all of the other businesses that you have to work with, from the power stations to the uh, competing companies and the purchasers, us, of electricity. How would you describe the concept of organisational culture for us today? Well, organisational culture means different things to different people. The way I've come to understand it after sort of 35 years of working in industry since I graduated from university, is primarily culture is how we do things around here. It's you know, the modus operandi of the organisation. It's much more than sort of the sentiment of the staff. It's much more than all the sort of ways in which you might otherwise try to describe culture. You know, culture really, as I say, comes down to how do we do things around here? What's the way we operate? What's the way we behave, you know, what are the attitudes that we have that shape our performance at work each day and in our lives. So you know, there are many facets, many different windows in which you might look into organisational culture. But uh, as I say, the way I sort of think of it is that culture is summed up by how things are done, you know, the way in which people operate. And that, of course, is from uh, the very minute and perhaps almost insignificant through to the very large things that are done in organisations. So I'm not sure that's a particularly complete answer, but it's at least the way I've uh, come to understand it. Can you tell me a little bit about how organisational culture is perceived at Energy Queensland? Organisational culture here, I've only been in the role just coming up now for, for 12 months. And to be fair, this is my first time in an electricity utility. I've spent uh, most of the previous 35 years in the natural gas and LNG 
industries, both here in Australia and uh, and overseas for more than a decade. Uh, so the, the organisational culture of an electricity utility is quite different than that of, uh, say, an oil and gas uh, an EMP company. Different doesn't mean better and doesn't mean worse, just means different. Uh, there's certainly a culture here of service. There's a great attachment, particularly in regional communities and for our people who are based in regional communities. There's a particular attachment uh, of uh, our staff to the mission of making sure that we safely and reliably and affordably allow the supply of electricity to their premises and uh, to basically uh, enhance their lives. Uh, the expectation of community, the expectation of customers around those three things, the, the safety of electricity supply, the reliability of electricity supply, and the affordability electricity supply uh, in that order, and that's the priority order from those uh, those stakeholders, really is the bedrock of what we have to achieve as an organisation. And people in the organisation are incredibly attached and motivated for what I've learned over the last year to making sure that we achieve those things, to making sure that the lights stay on, uh, or if they're off, they come back on as soon as is both safe and practicable. And uh, I think Nowhere is that better exemplified than when we have uh, weather events, um, whether it's a big storm that brings down the trees across uh, wires and brings lines down and cuts off the power to people, or whether it's a flood or a cyclone or a bushfire, or whatever it might be. Um, at least here in Queensland, where we have a, a great variety of weather, including tropical cyclones uh, in the mostly the, the northern two-thirds of the state through, uh, through summer each year, the response from the organisation to those kind of supply um, emergencies is nothing short of remarkable. People uh, respond in a way uh, with enormous you know, dedication and hard work and often working in very trying and uncomfortable conditions of both the wet and the heat um, in sometimes quite remote locations. Um, and they're doing that away from their families and they're doing that uh, in the middle of the night because they feel they have an obligation and a desire to make sure that people's electricity supply is safely and promptly returned uh, to them. So that's, I guess, as I said, one really significant part about the organisational culture here. And that sort of extends to, let's say, the more business as usual periods in between sort of storm and, and natural disaster events uh, where we take the responsibility for you know, that safe and regular supply of electricity to consumers very seriously because... Uh, if we have to do maintenance work, we have to do some construction work to extend or enhance the network. To do that safely, you, know, you have to take parts of the network uh, out, and that means you know, switching people's power off. The, the planning that goes into how that is done, the efforts that are done to make sure that people are informed that, that that's what's going to happen, that's what's planned, the planning that goes into the organisation and delivery of the works so that they can be safely and uh, properly and efficiently executed through uh, the duration of the outage that has been planned and communicated to the customers. Uh, just again goes back to the ownership that I see that our staff uh, at all levels in the organisation, whether they're hands-on in the field or they're uh, in supervision or management or in planning or engineering or inspection, whatever it might be, that the, the dedication and the ownership for the outcome which those people demonstrate on an incredibly regular basis yeah, is really quite remarkable. And it's important, of course, that we make sure that that natural and commendable eagerness to get the power back on doesn't mean that the safety of 
the people doing the work or of the assets and therefore the community is compromised in any way. So um, we work very hard to make sure that we have a safety culture. And I mean, especially in an operating organisation such as this, and I've worked for a number of different oil and gas companies where they were operating organisations, they were operating companies. You know, the primacy of safety over production, or in this case, the safety of uh, the primacy of safety over getting the power back on uh, has to be uh, the case every day. Um, so we've done a lot of work. I know that people in this organisation have uh, done a lot of work over a, a number of years um, to make sure that we don't have a, an attacking mindset in the field, that we're not cutting corners, we're not doing things the right way, we're making sure we identify all the hazards that are there in the job and we've got the right barriers and the right precautions in place and that if something's not right, that we stop and that we stop and reconsider and replan and then work out how to execute safely. It's really important to make sure that sometimes uh, organisational culture can be quite overwhelming and can actually drive people to do things which are not in line with the underlying uh, objectives of the organisation because they're just so keen to get stuff done and they, they want to get stuff finished. Uh, it's important to make sure that something like the safety of the individuals and of the kit and of the community who's, you know, who live around all of our equipment in the, the distribution businesses, that that is not compromised. What you touched on there was that there are three um, areas, three sort of organisational um, outcomes that you're looking for in terms of safety and making sure there's a, a regular supply of electricity that can be counted on and so forth. But you did say something about the culture in terms of the service industry that, that you've got at Energy Queensland and the idea that everybody who works there is really keen and feels a drive to make sure that the electricity they're supplying um, is done so in a way that makes the community, the lives of everyone in the community better. When you said that, that really touched on a point with me. That kind of sums up the organisational culture at Energy Queensland. And look, it, it would be naive to think that you know, every individual every day is absolutely motivated by those things and nothing else. But, you know, we're all human beings. Um, everybody has off days. Uh, some people might, for various reasons, um, be less focused or focused on other things from time to time. But uh, I would say that collectively, the, the ownership for making sure that we have safe and reliable supply and we do that ultimately at a, at a cost that's affordable for customers is something that everyone understands is the primary mission of the business. And you don't have to have that written down for that to be the mission um, because the people uh, know it's almost self-evident that those are the things that are important. And to what extent do you feel that the organisational culture that you have there is influenced by your leadership? I'd, I'd like to give myself that it's uh, enormously influenced. Um, the reality is you know, I'm a, a relative newcomer to the organisation. We have uh, many people in the organisation who worked for us for many decades. And, of course, it's a widely dispersed organisation. You know, it's 160 locations across the state. And what that means is that the impact of any one person as leader, including the CEO, is limited to a couple of things. You're only one person. And therefore, if you want to be effective at uh, leading or guiding an organisation, you've got to do that through other people. Uh, you can have a certain level of connection with people on the ground. And certainly in the, the last year, despite the sort of early challenges around COVID-19, uh, I've certainly been getting out. We have 99 depots around the state of Queensland, and uh, I've managed to get myself to 30 of those depots uh, in the last nine months um, because it's important. It's a bit old-fashioned. It's called management by walking around. 
it's a bit old-fashioned, but uh, I've always found it very effective and making yourself as a leader available to people uh, so that you can be see and be seen, that you can go and listen, look, you can learn, you find out things you'd never find out by reading a report or looking at your computer at your desk. Um, you find that out from talking to people uh, in field locations, in depots, uh, you know, where people are actually doing, uh, inverted commas, real work. You know, that's important. But also in any organisation, uh, leaders have got to lead through their people. It's really important to make sure that you've got uh, the team, the team of people who uh, you're responsible for. I don't like the word report to, uh, but the people, the, the direct team that you're responsible for, that you've got the right team there and that you're giving them uh, the right amount of, of coaching and guidance and direction and expectation setting so that they in turn can go and do that with their people. And from an organisational culture point of view, people normally draw organisation charts with the so-called boss at the top of the pyramid and then sort of various layers below. Conceptually, I've always liked to think of the fact that the so-called big boss should be the person at the bottom of an inverted pyramid um, because it's the, the responsibility of people in the executive and in senior management and their middle management uh, and then line supervision to support the people that they're responsible for. So that mindset of, of making sure that you're there to actually support your team, do the best that they can do and to be the best that they can be uh, both for their own career development but also for the you know, delivery of the objectives of the organisation. It's really important that as a leader you're making yourself available, um, that you're listening and that you're consulting because there's a whole bunch of other stakeholders that um, have a huge, huge say and a huge influence on whether the organisation is a success, a failure or something mediocre in the middle. And those stakeholders, of course, uh, normally are the people who own the business. And in our case, of course, we're owned by the people of Queensland. We're owned by the state of Queensland. And uh, I have a couple of shareholder ministers, the Minister for Energy and the, uh, and the Treasurer, State Treasurer. And, of course, they're, you know, they're the people who ultimately are responsible for the delivery of the services and things that we do. But, of course, they really represent the, the shareholders of the business, who, strangely enough, are also our customers and consumers, uh, fellow Queenslanders. Uh, I'd like to tell people it's uh, the, the shareholders of our company are uh, everybody else who lives in Queensland. Uh, it goes, goes back to the fact that people who own the business are also the people who we serve. So there's, a, there's quite a nice symmetry around, uh, around that. But there are other stakeholders. Uh, you know, Energy Queensland uh, has a, a very high proportion of, of union membership, and that's a really good thing. And you know, working closely and collaboratively with uh, the leadership of uh, the various unions and with their delegates within the organisation is absolutely key to successfully achieving what uh, needs to be achieved. And, of course, the, the workforce uh, of an organisation itself you know, it's a platitude to say that you know, uh, people are our most valuable resource. Uh, you see that trotted out from time to time. But it also happens to be the fact that without people, without the employees in your organisation, it's really very difficult to achieve anything. Certainly one person, even if you work 24-7, 365 days a year, there's only a limited amount that one person can ever do. You have to do it through other people and you have to try to galvanise the enthusiasm and skill and knowledge and intelligence of everybody in your workforce because they're the ones that will achieve what needs to be achieved. The leader's job is to try to facilitate that and to make it happen or to help make it happen. Do you think then that because of that, that culture 
um, has a has a strong influence on on performance um, in an organisation. In that, you know, you can't you can't um, sort of force people to work well if you like. You know, you can you can tell them that they need to work, and here are the goals that we need to do. But but if their heart's not in it, you're not going to get the same sort of outcome. Look, I think that's absolutely uh, the case, particularly so in an Australian context. Uh, you know, culturally, Australians, by and large, at least in my experience over the last three and a bit decades, in the workplace, in fact, in society, we're people who like to know why we're doing something, why we're being asked to do something. And if we're treated with respect and we're told why something is important and why doing X, Y or Z will lead towards achieving that objective and understanding what the objective is and why it's important and how it fits into the, the bigger picture, then there's at least a chance and hopefully a better chance that people will say, oh, okay, well, okay, I understand why we're doing this and why it's important. I'll uh, pull on the oar and I'll try to do my best and I'll use my skills and knowledge and intelligence and aptitude to, um, to do a good job and to help others do a good job as well. Uh, if you don't explain why, then the reverse is true. The, the result is probably saying, well, you know, um, Australians... Uh, I think always respond, I know I do, um, respond better to being asked than to being told. In other cultures, in different other different parts of the world, and I've worked in a few of them, you can have a different kind of society, different kind of uh, culture and mindset around the, the work environment and even the family environment, and therefore much more likely to just do what they're told. That doesn't, really doesn't work here in Australia. You've got to ask people and ask for their help in achieving what's needed to be required. Paying them alone is not enough. They've got to understand why. Yeah, absolutely true. And um, do you find at Energy Queensland that culture uh, that you can you can see, I guess, in, in examples that culture is specifically linked to the performance of the organisation? Yes, and and both uh, when we see fantastic performance, we see that it's linked to the, the culture and the ownership of what's trying to be done uh, by the people who are involved. And when we fall short, and sometimes we do. Sometimes also that comes down to the culture, at least maybe in that particular area or that particular team or uh, in that particular part of the organisation isn't what it needed to be. And and in particular, I, I give an example that often if we see that there's uh, a shortcoming around, say, something really important like the, the safety of an operation, uh, when we go and really try to understand why um, we've fallen short of what we should have been doing. It's often because the culture isn't what everyone knows should have been the case. So, um, you know, culture can impact in the micro, uh, in, a, in a very small level. Um, it, it's not a case of, you know, culture just uh, impacts at a, at a much broader level necessarily. So it, the culture certainly has a connection to what gets done and how it gets done. Yeah. And and do at that micro level especially, do you have, uh, I, I mean, I assume you've had experiences in the past um, and maybe even, as you say, at Energy Queensland about then having to change that culture and go about trying to reconstruct that culture to, to then affect a positive outcome? I guess you give an example. You, you, you're right. There are often instances where either within a particular part of an operation or a particular team or a particular management group or within a whole organisation, you say, look, the culture is this and that isn't what we really think we should be and how do we move it from point A to point B. As I pointed out before, I think it's really important that uh, if you're going to try to move the culture of an organisation, you have to explain why it's important and 
why you're wanting to move from A to B and why it'll be better when we're all at B rather than with some of us at A. I'll give an example, actually, and I personally can't take much credit for this because it was already happening in this organisation before I arrived. Um, a few years ago, arguably, there may have been a culture, as I understand it, where if there was a, an incident, uh, something went wrong, something didn't go right, and especially if somebody got hurt, that there would be an investigation and the investigation was perhaps quite uh, the kind of investigation that says it's, it's looking to find out not just what happened and why it happened, but also who's to blame. Uh, it was, it was uh, a process where people felt that if something had gone wrong, that uh, the investigation was really aimed at working out who to ping. Organisationally, over a number of years, uh, this organisation has moved and I've been trying to enhance its further development of this over the last year to where the objective of investigation of a safety incident has absolutely not as its objective working out who to blame, but work out what can we learn. So uh, the introduction of learning teams where people are involved in the, the incident and others come and sit all together for half a day, let's say, and talk through the incident. And when they understand there's no prosecutorial sort of bent around it, you're not trying to work out who to blame and who to at the very least, embarrassing at the uh, the very worst, uh, get rid of. Uh, then people open up and you actually understand all the underlying reasons for why that particular incident may have occurred. And then you can do something about preventing it, uh, rather than the opposite reaction, which is people just dive for cover and they look to make sure they can't be blamed or held accountable. So you know that change in culture, which especially around improving your safety performance i found in previous jobs is so important that you move from sort of a, a punitive investigation to an open and transparent examination of all the reasons including all the underlying reasons as to why something happened if you if you can change that aspect of your culture particularly around safety then you know, that will allow you to get much better results and then certainly the safety performance of this organization has been improving markedly over the last uh, the last little while. Uh, the number of significant incidents that we uh, had, and a significant incident is something where either someone got badly hurt, and we've had a couple of those, uh, or uh, there was a potential for someone getting badly hurt or killed. You know, the number of those per year uh, has actually um, dropped by a factor of three in the last year. But you can only do that if you've got the right culture, and it's going to be a culture around learning and learning from your mistakes and sharing them openly and candidly. Um, so uh, I'd give that as a specific example of an element of organisational culture. If you don't get it right, then you won't get the, you won't get the performance and results that you want. Yeah, so you've had a really positive outcome from that, but also you're doing something quite practical um, in changing the organisational culture um, around that issue. Sometimes, though, the, you, one works for organisations where they find out that the sort of espoused values of, of the organisation might not line up with the feeling on the floor. Have you experienced that um, or, or seen that in, in companies, not necessarily your own, but other, other companies? And what sort of effect does that have on an organisation? Look, there would be more than one. In fact, there would be probably many uh, hundreds of organisations in Australia, let alone across the world, who have carefully thought through uh, mission statements and um, value statements and other sort of uh, documents that have been sort of put together um, by well-intended people with uh, with the best of motives, and they sit within organisations 
frankly, at best ignored, at worst irrelevant, um, because uh, they're often have too much in them. They often have too much uh, verbiage. They're put together at a uh, an academic level or at a intellectual level, which doesn't necessarily talk to everybody in the organisation. And whilst they there's no harm in having them in place, there may be benefits from having them in place. Typically, you go to many organisations, you say, okay, well, tell me what your value statement is. And they go, oh, mm, scratch, thinking about that. Uh, oh, well, what about, uh, and look, most organisations uh, have them. Uh, certainly you know, uh, larger publicly listed companies and certainly uh, larger sort of uh, organisations that are uh, government-owned like ourselves uh, would have them. But they fail to talk to most people and most people can't remember them. And they certainly, when they, they sort of get to work each day, they're not thinking about that stuff. And uh, simplification of the, the message and bringing it back to you know, what's really important to organisation. You know, um, and in this organisation... You know, we've over the last year uh, started to try to focus all on those three things I started talking about, which is uh, the safety of our people and of our community and customers, the safety of our assets, about keeping the lights on, you know, making sure that we, we have reliable electricity supply uh, for uh, all of our consumers and customers. And lastly, that we, we do that at a cost, and that's a total cost to the society in a way that's affordable. You know, it's not just the cost of what people are paying in their power bill, but it's also, of course, you know, the kind of return that we might be able to give on our $26 billion worth of assets um, back to the people who own us, which is the state of Queensland, the people of Queensland. So it's really uh, important sometimes as a leader to try to simplify things. And I, I personally can't remember more than three things off the top of my head most times. I have to go and look at a written list. Uh, I think many people would find they're in a similar. Maybe, maybe you can do four. You're better than me. But if 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 the things are kind of self-evident, people could work that stuff out for themselves if they had thought about it for five seconds. Then um, it's much more likely to resonate and to be something that people can get behind. Now, if you have a a list that is six or seven or ten items long, good luck. And it doesn't mean that a whole bunch of other stuff can't sit. Uh, underneath and behind uh, sort of those sort of three sort of key principles or, or purposes of an organisation. Um, but if as a leader you can simplify things so that uh, whether it's a person who is in the field with their hands on the spanner uh, doing a great job or whether it's one of the boffins, you know, uh, sitting in the in the professional ranks of the, of the, uh, the organisation uh, or it's uh, somebody... Um, in an administrative or uh, accounting or support role, they can all understand, okay, this is what this business is meant to be doing. You know, it, it, it's sometimes hard, I guess. You know, let's say you're a, a person who's uh, sitting in accounts. How do they relate back to you know, those objectives that we have of you know, the safety, um, the reliability and the, the affordability? Well, they can probably make connections for the affordability because they're the ones hopefully that are you know, counting the cash and, and making sure that our finances are in shape. So most people in this organisation, we felt, could at least directly connect what they do every day to at least one of those, if not more than one of those sort of three key principles. And I think that, you know, taking away the sort of management speak, taking away the consultant speak, taking away all of the perhaps sometimes superfluous and additional words and 
putting it in terminology that people get and understand. And in our case, it's safety, reliability, and sustainability, financial sustainability. Now, sustainability, of course, has a much broader remit than just financial sustainability, unless you have sustainability around your environmental and, and other aspects of your, of your operations. You won't have financial sustainability either. So uh, I'm, I'm a great fan of, of simplifying things so that not just the management types get it, not just the board and uh, the people reading the annual report might get it, but that everyone gets it. Yeah, there's a great practicality about the statements, the three statements that you have there, because you're not asking somebody on the ground to remember uh, stewardship or explain integrity in their role, which are so often statements that you hear in organisations in terms of values, but you're asking them to do something which does, you know, espouse integrity, but the the outcome is a practical one. And in that way, the culture is linked to uh, the strategy of the organisation. Indeed. And look, what I've found is that simplifying, if you, you can't make it trivial, if you can simplify it to the point where, say, everybody can get it, it's just as relevant for, say, the, the, the person in the field who's doing uh, work on the ground as it is for the board, as it is for the shareholders. And uh, you know, one of the, I think, the important acts of leadership when it comes to shaping organisational culture is to make sure that people are able to understand what the purpose of the organisation, what the mission of the organisation is. Um, because if they understand those things, those, at least in our case, those three things, then everything else can be seen in context of uh, how it contributes or doesn't contribute to one or more of those sort of three things. If our students, our graduates in the MBA program here at USQ were lucky enough to, to get into a senior leadership role when they graduate uh, or soon after, what sort of advice would you give to them about the importance of understanding an organisation's culture, especially a new one that they come into? The first thing that's important is uh, to do a lot of listening and to ask a lot of questions and uh, to sponge up uh, as much information and intelligence uh, about how things are done in that organisation uh, as you can. I guess partway through doing that, you don't want to wait until you've absorbed what you think is everything because you'll never get there. But after a little while, you need then to think about, okay, how does this fit with my own values uh, as a person? And how can I influence what I've now come to understand as the organisational culture, the operational culture of the, the business? How can I try to influence it in a way which is positive and will improve the performance of the organisation. So it's at that point that you've got to start communicating. You've got to communicate, you've got to consult, you've got to share, you've got to explain, you've got to make sure it's quite clear what your expectations are. Uh, there's an old, uh, an old saying, I'm not sure who, from whom, that says, you know, if you have low expectations, you're unlikely to see them exceeded. And if you have high expectations, people might fall a bit short of those high expectations, but you'll be a whole lot better than if you had set low expectations. So setting high expectations, obviously not silly high expectations. If they're silly or stupid or completely dumb, then people will say, oh, you're joking. It, it, it's important to make sure that people you know, see what the expectations are, that they're high expectations, but they're not so stupidly high that uh, they could never be uh, uh, unattained. Otherwise, they won't even go for them. So it's important, as I say, as you, as you move into the sort of 
from the listening phase into the sort of acting phase that you're communicating what those expectations are. It's often good, of course, to try to galvanise an organisation around a particular issue um, or a particular, as I said, never waste a crisis. Um, If you've got a particular issue that really needs uh, attention, so it needs to be done anyway, but one which you can use to galvanise the organisation around uh, how it's going to provide the fix to that particular issue, then that's a great way of uh, getting people uh, mobilised and motivated. As long as they see that, that that particular issue and fixing it goes to, as I said, the sort of the primary objectives of the of the organisation, and they can see that that you know they can do something about it, they can they can help. And we've certainly uh, in the process um, of doing that. We we have some particular challenges uh, here in not just in Queensland but across the eastern seaboard with the very substantial adoption of rooftop solar, renewables in many forms. So there's lots of solar farms and wind farms uh, out in the bush as well that have been connected to the grid. Um, the, the growth in rooftop solar across all the eastern states has just been amazingly high. And uh, here in Queensland, we have lots of rooftop space and we have lots of sunshine, being the sunshine state. And in fact, we are leading the world in the rollout of uh, rooftop solar in, uh, in Queensland. But last year in Queensland, it was more than... 750 megawatts of rooftop solar capacity installed. And uh, the the forecast from the national grid operator, AEMO, was for about 400, so um, almost double the the forecast. And that's doing some really uh, different and strange things to the electricity network because electricity used to flow from large coal-fired power stations through transmission lines, then into distribution uh, wires, and ultimately to people's homes and business premises. That situation is being rapidly, very rapidly turned on its head. So the, the biggest power stations in the state, the country, very shortly are going to be people's roofs. In collective, in, in aggregate, uh, there's going to be a, a very, very, uh, there's already but even more substantial amount of, of rooftop solar. What it means is that electricity systems start to run backwards. So those households, of course, self-generate during the day when the sun's shining and cover their own domestic household consumption during that period, but any excess that they generate, they're injecting backwards through the service wire back into our network. So we have large portions of the network that are now starting to run backwards during the day, or backwards compared to how they were designed for. And that's producing a lot of technical challenge for the network. It's putting a particularly heavy load upon our electrical infrastructure. And ultimately, if if not properly addressed, we're going to have some pretty dire ramifications uh, in terms of Power supply reliability. That's that's a polite way of saying we're we're going to have a we're going to have some blackouts if we don't get on top of it. And of course, we're only part of a much larger electricity ecosystem, and there are a whole bunch of different things that need to be done more or less in parallel over the next couple of years to make sure we continue that reliability of electricity supply. So, given that challenge, that's one of the things that we're uh, you know galvanising this business around is is how do we respond to that to make sure that. Uh, that tsunami of rooftop solar doesn't swamp everybody. So you've embedded that in everybody's DNA at the organisation so that their culture, collectively, that they're getting on board with you, going on that journey with you. I certainly hope so. That's the idea. <laughs> yes. <laughs> um, but what we are trying to do is to make sure that people see that there's a clear and present danger to the reliability of electricity supply, 
and there's uh, a number of things that we need to be doing and we're on our bike and getting after them. Uh, look, in the same way that this organisation responds so magnificently to the crisis when, when Mother Nature uh, deals us up a big cyclone and we have you know, tens of thousands of customers without power, uh, how this organisation rises and people mobilise and work their guts out to, uh, to get the power back on. That's the response to a crisis and this organisation is probably more accomplished at that than many, many other uh, organisations, even in the same sector. It's harnessing that same response to a crisis, which uh, we're trying to do to a different kind of crisis this time around electricity reliability uh, because of too much of rooftop solar. So rooftop solar uh, will continue to grow. People are very keen on it. Uh, it's been consumer uh, driven and you know, that growth in the amount of rooftop solar continues to chug along very fast uh, every day. And we've certainly got our challenges in that particular area. Rod Duke, uh, CEO of Energy Queensland, some inspiring uh, thoughts there about organisational culture. Um, really good discussion. Thank you very much for coming on the show. Look, I'm very happy. Um, hopefully it's been of some use to somebody. Anyway, thank you. Thank you very much, Rod. Information about our guests can always be found in the podcast show notes in your podcast app or on the course site. This has been a University of Southern Queensland podcast produced by the Office for the Advancement of Learning and Teaching.